This is Bellator Colloquium, a podcast of the Bellator Society. Bellator in Latin means warrior, and a colloquium is a conversation. We at the Bellator Society are online warriors for the true, good, and beautiful, and this podcast is our conversation about all those things and so much more. Meet us here weekly at Bellator Colloquium and at bellatorsociety.com for content that will hopefully lift you, inspire you, comfort you, and make you feel a part of our Bellator Society. Hello, friends and warriors, and welcome to the podcast. We are so pleased to present today a special podcast interview. Dr. Matt Yeager, a Catholic emergency medicine physician, will be interviewing Dr. Mike Ferry, a Catholic psychiatrist specializing in the area of addiction. Addiction is a common and devastating human condition that affects so many of us in our homes, our families, and our communities. It's a Catholic issue because it's a human issue. Addiction is an experience of immense suffering, even as those dealing with it are using substances and the responses of brain chemistry to avoid suffering. As Christians, we believe that no suffering, no hurt, no addiction, no sin has not been answered by the cross of Jesus, our Savior. On this day, especially as we reflect on the death of our blessed Lord, we are dealing seriously with the effects of our brokenness. We will also be talking about sensitive topics. So if you're not alone right now, please pause here. You might consider saving this podcast for a more appropriate time or use other means to protect little ears and others nearby. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Good day to you, Bellator Society. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, This is Matt Yeager. I'm filling in today, and uh, I'm so happy to be here with you uh, because I'm excited that we have a guest speaker with us today. Uh, This is a friend of ours, Mike Ferry, who is a psychiatrist uh, here in the Nashville area. Good friend of ours for the past several years since we moved to Nashville. And uh, Mike gave a spectacular talk a few weeks ago to the Catholic Medical Association here in Nashville and because Mike is an expert now on addiction and he has been dealing uh, in the addiction field uh, for a while now and and shared with us at the Catholic Medical Association a fantastic overview of of the basically the biological pathways of addiction and and kind of what that means to us in terms of, of morality and our spirituality and our whole person, and I loved it. And as soon as we got done with the talk, I called, uh, or maybe I texted Mike, I can't remember if I called or texted you, but it was almost instantly, I was like, dude, we've, we've got to get you uh, on Fran and Tracy's podcast, because this, this is information that I think people would, would want to know. So Mike, thanks for, so much for joining us today. Matt, I am thrilled to be here. Thank you well, for having me. Well, fill us in. Well, I, so Mike, uh, I, I'll give you a brief intro on Mike, and I'll let him share some other stuff. Mike's, Mike's Canadian. You, could, you may tell from uh, his accent. We're still working on his, his uh, Southern Tennessee accent. His drawl is not quite there yet, uh, but we're, we're working on that. And uh, Mike, like I said earlier, is a psychiatrist um, and worked in private practice for a while, but now is working in the, uh, in the, the addiction field. So fill us in, Mike, what do people need to know about you? Well, I don't really need to know anything about me, the <laughs> message that's important. Um, not the messenger here. 
Well, you know, I, I'm not an expert really in this. Uh, I treat patients with addiction kind of day in and day out from a mental health and uh, addiction treatment perspective. I'm, I'm very interested in what this tells us about human behavior and the kind of the meaning of um, sin and the will and um, how we heal as human beings and human brokenness. So um, really the addiction is a very revealing, um, you know, like all sorts of, of diseases are, addiction is a very revealing thing. When you break something, you learn more about how it works. Um, so I, I get to do that uh, as a medical director of a um, women's facility in Nashville that treats women with uh, substance use disorders and, mm. um, and, and another smaller facility for both men and women. And then I have a, a private practice as well for um, um, people with addiction mostly how did you get into that like you know so you were doing you were doing private practice psychiatry general psychiatry practice for a while right yeah after I, we came down here to to for me to finish my training at Vanderbilt and then um, I've always kind of had a soft spot or a, a desire to treat addiction as part of my practice so I've done that more and more and more over the years and um, the opportunity just came up a couple of years ago to dive into it more full time. Mm. And um, it seemed, it was interesting. We, we went to Haiti for a mission trip. Uh, mm -hmm. I took the older kids with me, went to Haiti. And you really have to detach from everything there. There's no cell phones, there's no cell reception. It's very quiet. Um, and we're there for a week. And coming back, I, I really had the sense that God has used this time to open me up to hear his voice in something. And, and not like a day and a half later, after getting back to work, um, this offer fell in my lap to um, become a medical director of The Next Door, which is an all-women's... feel like he prepared you during that time down yes. there, huh? Do you, do, you know, do you think you might have turned it down had you not been prepared, you know? Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 Life is so busy, you don't, you don't hear those things sometimes. Not yeah. in the right light. So overall, very glad. Well, what, so, I mean, I got training on addiction during med school, right? You know, I, and, and you know, I learned some about addiction. I had a, a, you know, part of my degree in undergrad was uh, psychology. So I knew a little bit about addiction there. Um, but I'm curious to, I'm curious to hear, you know, if you've always had a soft spot for this, and obviously you got training as time went by, do, do you see do you see any transition in what your understanding of how addiction worked from early in your career to to how has that morphed and what uh, and and how do you see addiction now? Is there anything that's changed about that as time's gone by? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think tremendously so in so many things, and it's actually a moving target, so it's kind of hard to put it all mm -hmm. in words, but. You know, if you and got, obviously, there's a lot of, of of people focusing on it now. Obviously, with with the narcotics addiction uh, that we're seeing, I mean, a big focus now. People uh, looking at this a, a little more heavily mm -hmm. um, as yeah, well. Yeah, that's true, and and that's very much a good thing. Um, the danger there is that you you're bringing to bear on this on the crisis a whole bunch of superficial understanding of addiction. So. Mm -hmm. um, it hasn't necessarily changed the way people think about it. Just, just uh, that we're seeing a lot more money spent on it and and mm. uh, the spotlight mm -hmm. on it more. You know, um, I, you know, most medical students don't get any training on addiction, 
that there's you know surveys out there that show that most doctors who come out of training have zero to very little um, understanding of addiction, and that it's not it's not something that we teach in medical school. So I don't think I don't think you and I probably got you know a little bit of of basic science on addiction, but but nothing that would kind of make us in any way suitable to treat addiction. And yet, you know, healthcare providers are sort of the the front line. Uh, people who encounter addiction in emergency rooms mm-hmm. and private practice mm-hmm. uh, in the in the um, primary care office and and that's part of the reason probably that that our our treatment outcomes are so abysmally bad is that um, those of us on the front lines have very little ability to to recognize it pick it up screen for it and then appropriately guide to treatment and then um, actually deliver treatment I mean, I would say, I mean, as an ER doctor, you know, like we're we're almost, I feel like handicapped in so many ways when when we're seeing people, we don't have a relationship with these patients and we don't, we're just seeing them very quickly. Um, and they're in the midst, obviously, they're either coming in, you know, in the in the midst of a of either a behavioral or legal or law enforcement something, you know, crisis that that their addiction has gotten them into, or mm-hmm. they're there. We are seeing them, and we suspect they're they're drug seeking, and somebody is there, you know, with some sort of a pain complaint and asking for medications, and we feel so helpless in the ER, and and we we get frustrated and we get angry uh, at at patients with addiction very quickly, and and throw up our hands and like, here's another addicted patient. What am I going to do with this? You know, and and so I. I know in the ER field, we we've struggled with a long time on on how to effectively get people from from that point where we're seeing them in crisis in the ER to some place where where they can get get help. Yeah, yeah, that's very true, and I, I've seen that being consulting in the emergency room so many times, both mm-hmm. both for addiction and for just mental health too, and um, you see that that kind of frustration translate into. Um, Anger translate into uh, dismissiveness, rejection, um, and actually poor care. You know, it's not. Mm-hmm. It, it was last week I sent someone with um, alcoholic pancreatitis to the emergency room, and they sent him right back because he was intoxicated, and 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 just kicked him right out without any blood work or anything. Even even after I'd sent, uh, you know, he's coming from a physician from a facility asking for information, and it was it's nothing more than just sort of. Um, uh, moralizing behavior that mm. prov- and judgment that that kind of cuts us off from our from making good rational judgments about good care. You know, I think most of the listeners to the podcast are are going to be non medical folks. You know, and I and so help help us understand. You know how addiction happens why are are our brains wired in some sort of a way that and and is one individual different from another individual when it comes to our susceptibility to get in stuck in these addictive kind of pathways how how does this work how how, how do our brains work when it comes to addiction so that Matt is such a big topic i think one way to break it down would be to say um can you can you kind of look at and describe what is um, normal, you know, the, the way the brain a- reacts to normal, pleasurable stimuli, and mm-hmm. and then 
what, you know, we've heard this term, like drugs hijack the brain. What does that mean that drugs actually hijack the brain? And then ask the question about are there certain things that make us more vulnerable to mm-hmm. having drugs hijack the brain, right? So on the, fir- the first part would be what, what do we know much about the brain's um, uh, processing of pleasure, of pleasurable stimuli that seems to go awry so many times in, in people with addiction? And the answer, so it's Lent right now, and I gave up. Uh, I've given up a, a, a list of things. So when I get to eat my first piece of chocolate cake, and I, mm, oh yeah, I'm thinking. Yeah. So what what's happening? What's happening to me when I eat that chocolate cake? So that you know, that's that's a good good way of looking at it. You know, um, when we have fasted from something and abstained from something for a while. Um, that we experience the pleasure of it in a in kind of a new and more rewarding way. So we could kind of start mm-hmm. there, right? Mm-hmm. So say you've you've um, you've spent six weeks without chocolate, if you didn't count Sundays, even better. <laughs> uh, then your experience of a Cadbury egg or something on um, on Easter morning <laughs> or after the vigil um, is uh, so. What what happens is the when we experience that that warm, fuzzy feeling of pleasure, what we call, uh-huh. we call that reward on a very basic level. Okay. What's happening in our brain is the brain is synthesizing at a very, very basic level from the sensations that it's experiencing. Something pleasurable, God has made it so that, that the, the things that are good for us as an organism, such as eating sugar, uh, drinking water, uh, salty foods, fatty foods uh, with high lipid contents, um, sex, sexual activity, some nurturing behaviors, hugging, those kind of things, uh, give, us, um, uh, give us a burst of a neurotransmitter called dopamine in certain parts of the brain. So as, those, as we sense those things and kind of integrate the whole experience, um, God made it so that we have... Um, there's a system in the brain that starts lighting up with uh, bursts of dopamine. So in the system, the, when there is a release of, of the neurotransmitter dopamine in, in what's called the nucleus accumbens, the organism feels... So, so we're saying in between, in between all of these, like the way the neurons are actually communicating with each other, uh, these certain types of... Uh, of neurons in this area of the brain, they're actually releasing the dopamine, and then the, which is sending a signal to the next neuron to fire. Right? Yeah, I kind of skipped over that part. So you're you're right. So the brain, if the brain is kind of like a big black box for people, but really it's it's a collection of eighty six or so billion single individual neuron cells that have eighty six billion. Touch, right. Wow. Each, each touching up to. I think five to ten thousand other neurons. So you have you have at least a thousand trillion synaptic connections in there, oh my gosh. making a very powerful microprocessor uh, or macroprocessor, maybe. So maybe. you we tend we kind of organize it into systems of different bunches of neurons that talk to other bunches of neurons and control sort of one system. There's a temperature system. There's a uh, emotion mood regulation system. There's the motor system. There's, you know, all these different systems. And you can kind of piece apart from diff- from studies where you can look at imaging in the brain, what's, what bunches of neurons talk to other neurons and complete okay. certain tasks. So okay. the scientists have been able to very well since the 60s and 70s been, been able to 
kind of hone in on the system called the reward system, which is um, bunches of neurons in the midbrain that talk to neurons in the our orbital frontal cortex and our prefrontal cortex that then talk to our memory systems, putting it mm. very and mood systems very very simplistically, really. But that's it's a good framework so that you can see either by um, uh, s- imaging studies where you where you put people in scanners and get them to eat chocolate or or um, uh, you can actually see people high on cocaine and see what's happening or um, mm-hmm. th- things like that. And you can see what and parts And we can see which, which light up, like which ones are more active, which parts of the brain are active when this certain stimulus is mm-hmm. happening. Okay. And, and you can see that also in rats and mice and monkeys. And, and, and scientists have been able to, to confirm those areas by putting, especially in animal models, putting little micro pipettes in there and dripping dripping dopamine in and you get the same response or Uh or giving little electrical stimulus in those areas you get the same response you told something in your talk that i thought was fascinating it was you were talking about these experiments with rats and so when when you were talking about dripping in the dopamine or the one that you were talking about with like a little electrode in there uh and an experiment where where they were directly stimulating with a slight electrical impulse directly into the brain, into that reward center, and they were trying to figure out the behaviors of this of this rat. And 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 the the one that you were talking about was that the rat was actually hooked up so that he could like press a button, right? Right. right. What so what happened? So the the happy little rat could press the lever, and every time uh-huh. he pressed the lever, he'd get a, a tiny little shock in the nucleus accumbens, which which simulated dopamine, dopamine release, which gave him a feeling of pleasure. So the poor mm-hmm. little rat would then press that lever all day long, and if they didn't turn it off, the rat would die because basically he's over. They've overridden his ability to um, to fo- to to weed out any other um, any other worry or concern because he's so focused on receiving that that pleasure. So he wouldn't eat, he wouldn't drink, he wouldn't do anything else but sit there and push the button until he died. Yeah. And oh my and gosh. if the if the little electrode was half a millimeter off in one direction or another, you wouldn't have that effect at all. So they mm-hmm. you know, they're able to isolate exactly that group of neurons and describe what it does. So the system, so this is the system that we're we're all using on a daily basis for all sorts of normal and good things. It, the system helps us in some respect because it it encourages us to do the things to keep ourselves alive, right? That's the whole purpose of it, I think, is to not just so at the beginning, you know, what it is is it helps us identify things that are good for us. But that doesn't help us very much if we're not able to then repeat that behavior. So, you know, if we if we discover um, you know, if we're running around a prehistoric forest and we discover a bunch of um, apples under an apple tree and we gorge on apples and it's wonderful until we're, until we're full and satiated and we go away, if we don't remember the things that cued us then to find that again, you know, what the smell was like, mm-hmm. what the path was like, what the, uh, what the area was like, then, then it doesn't help us very much. So this, the reward system okay. is connected very closely to the memory system, which lays down very strong associations, and we call them cues, cues and triggers, to be able to guide us, guide the organism back to whatever is good Mm. for it. Okay. The same thing is true about the motivational system. So you could say, well, just because you had a good experience and just because you remember how to get there 
doesn't help at all if your motivational system doesn't drive you towards it. So you kind of say those three systems function together as this motivational reward system that drives behavior towards the good. And this okay. isn't necessarily the higher good, so to speak, although, um, but, but you, you, can, you can understand how lower goods and, you know, pursuing uh, food and reproduction and stuff, how that, that is good for the, the individual and for the species and promotes survival and why God would have made it that way. So how do things then get off track? If we've got this system that is great, it's programmed into us, and and from what we can see, it's programmed into other organisms as well. It's not just humans who have this organism, this this pathway, right? We we see this through a whole variety of species. Correct. Uh, yeah. Correct. Like yeah, all the way. How far back does this go? This pathway go as far as we can tell. Well, I, I don't know really. I guess. Uh, when it comes to dopamine, you see dopamine uh, in most, in all chordates, and you see it even before, um, if you're talking kind of evolutionarily, you know, in, in all animals that, um, that have uh, vertebrae, you, you see this mm-hmm. general kind of system preserved, and you see dopamine. So maybe not a sponge or a jellyfish, but, you know, anything with a spine and, and kind of central nervous system kind of thing, we're, we're seeing this same pathway. Yeah, or or something similar, and that you know that's okay. um, it's really good actually to think to think that through in terms of how um, you know we we think of human beings as so separate from the animal kingdom, and yet our bodies are they've come out of the earth whether you know whether that's um, in six thousand years or in in six billion years we are we're part of the earth and the same systems in us are the same systems that are happening in mm-hmm. life all over the world. And, mm-hmm. and so it's, it's actually, to me, profoundly comforting to know that, um, w- you know, what uh, I'm not, I'm not sort of an angel uh, driving a body around. I'm, I'm, I'm one whole thing that's right. um, organic, just like, just like the cows that I'm uh, see on the side of the road or the the rats that are running around. Now, oh, by the way, so yeah, and the cows. Uh, it, also, you're you're a rancher too now, aren't you? You got you got you got cows all over your property there. Yes, yes, it's funny. <laughs> it's a it's a very so very good watching, way to relax. That's just funny that funny that cow was the first thing that popped up. I was like, I know why you thought of cows first. <laughs> Dopamine in my brain when I when I think of cows. Right there, <laughs> you go. That's awesome. So so okay. So we're all wired this way. How does it go wrong? Like what? So why okay. why did it? Why does it go bad? That idea of drugs hijacking the brain is is um, or hijacking this system is a good a good way of looking at it because what happens is that we you know we're supposed to sense things from the outside we sense pleasure whether it's taste or smell or a feeling and then this this pathway activates we we get a burst of dopamine we feel a reward and we remember closely the cues and then we're we're driven and preoccupied to try to pursue that later so then what would happen if you if you take a substance like cocaine, for instance, which has in itself there's nothing pleasure about about a white powder or a whitish pale rock that you smoke or something like that. Mm-hmm. Nothing nothing about that stimulus that's inherently pleasurable in the least. In fact, it, it, a lot of times you know you think of IV heroin use, it's actually not pleasurable at all to inject stuff into your own veins. And stuff. Right, it's painful. Painful, right? But 
Um, but as soon as those substances get into the bloodstream, go through the blood-brain barrier, and end up in that uh, nucleus accumbens in the reward pathway, they do something in there that mimics what dopamine does, or it affects what dopamine is doing. So, for instance, cocaine, if it gets to that site, will block dopamine in that system from being reabsorbed, which means that you get whatever dopamine's in that system is is staying out longer and building oh. up in concentration. And so you okay. it gives a false, um, it, it, it ends up with this um, load of dopamine that's there for no actual reason except that you've tricked the system to, to dump so it So it's there. not like where, where normally, you know, something good, something that is truly good for our body has triggered this release of dopamine. Now we have some artificial substance that is that is induced a release of this dopamine, even though there was no actual good to ourselves. Exactly. And all, okay. all other drugs of abuse, including, including alcohol, um, come down to that in one way or another. They, they affect that system where the final result then is that, that this pleasurable experience via dopamine is experienced without anything uh, actual good happening to mm-hmm. the body. And some of, these, some of these stimuli, some of these drugs now uh, produce such an, an intense dopamine response. Does it, does it kind of wash out all of the other, our new pathways being built so strong that it washes out the stuff that we've learned previously? So that I don't know if it washes out so much as you're right. The idea that if you have so using heroin, for instance, could be described as um, a pleasure uh, far beyond the normal pleasures that most people really uh, tend to experience. If if what what happens then is you kind of ratchet up your your um, pleasure sense so that mm-hmm. normal pleasures such as eating chocolate ice cream. Um, or hugging your kids be, are, are nothing. They, 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 on the, no. They're no longer on the scale of something that you sense mm-hmm. as pleasurable. And that, that doesn't happen with the first use of something, but that happens over time, and that process is called neuroadaptation, the idea that the mm-hmm. neurons in the, in the brain adapt to this new state. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of a three-wave three or three-part cycle to this. So when someone first is exposed to a drug... Um, or first gets drunk on alcohol, something like that. It's the we call it the binge intoxication phase. When when you you get intoxicated, you experience the pleasurable results. You're cued up then to remember how you got there. And when everything wears off out of your system, you're a little bit preoccupied by a desire to repeat that experience. So you're you call it looking forward to. So that may happen in mm. college with oh I got drunk in the weekend and had a lot of fun. And woke up with a hangover, but I got better. And then now throughout the week, I'm looking forward to another party on the weekend. You know, it Mm -hmm. may be as innocent as that. And many people are able to handle that and it doesn't progress beyond there. But if you move into the second stage where you begin repeating the binge intoxication, then you find out um, the intoxication state um, you, you, you get there more often, you stay there longer than you thought you would, i.e. you drink more, you drink more for longer, you drink when you didn't intend to. It was Thursday night, I was going to wait till Friday, and I should have had my mm-hmm. assignment done, but I didn't because I wanted, oh, you know. And then the withdrawal state is a little bit more hard. You get more of a hangover, you're struggling a little bit more, 
and the preoccupation is more intense. There's a desire to make that feeling get better again, to go back to that state. And then if you continue to repeat that, you move into kind of this final adaptive stage, which is full-blown addiction, where if you, you, you're, you get intoxicated, you stay intoxicated, it's not nearly as good or as pleasurable as it was, but you want to be there anyway. As soon as it starts wearing off, you have intense negative emotion, this deep desire to flee from this bad feeling, and, um, and truly, truly a bad, anxious, um, angry, emotional state mm. that is only fixed then by getting intoxicated again. And every moment that you're not intoxicated is spent in this kind of planning um, and uh, obsessing about how I'm going to get there again. And that, that kind of describes that last. In, you know, I think, you know, for someone who is not in the midst of an addiction, you know, say we're, we're thinking about somebody in our family or a loved one that we know that is dealing with this addiction, as somebody who is not struggling in a, in a deep addiction like that right now, it's so easy to say, you know, can't you see how hard, how, how much damage this is doing to you? Don't you see your life falling apart? Like, you know, it's wrong. And, and like, maybe the person even says, I know this is terrible for me. And you like, why just, just don't do it then. Like, you know, just stop, like quit, you know, just, it's as simple as that. You just don't pick up another drink. You don't, you, you don't take another hit and you're done. But but it's so that that motivational and and that that memory the 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 connection there between the reward the memory and the motivation mm-hmm. that you mm-hmm. were talking about how it cycles through with those triggers what what's it like for somebody who knows in their mind that this is bad for me mm-hmm. and yet I can't stop doing it what what is that what is that daily life like for somebody like that It's a mess as as you can imagine you know one thing we didn't talk about is the what what happens in that final stage is that the prefrontal cortex which is you know the big part of our brain in the front of our head which is very distinctly human and is where we have all our impulse control our mm-hmm. um executive behavior so we plan we think of consequences we weigh out the consequences of different courses of actions we and we inhibit bad behavior that's Mm -hmm. that's the part of the brain that um, rental car companies want to be fully there before they rent cars to 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 teenagers so they they wait till age 25 Um, okay and if people so you're saying we're we're still a mess we're we're a mess until 25 at least at least 25 down which is which is explains a lot of teenagers impulsive behavior right is that that frontal lobe is not yet not yet fully developed and in people who have big traumas to their frontal lobe a head injury or something they can display terrible terrible judgment um, even though everything else in their brain is intact they can move completely Mm. fine they can act fine otherwise they just so what happens in addiction which is kind of a key thing to remember is that 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 area of judgment and forethought is very much down-regulated. So the inputs into that that would normally there be there are very much scaled down, like dramatically scaled down, so that mm. the person's judgment about their the consequences of their behavior become um, almost non-existent. And the focus then becomes entirely on solving the negative affect now by getting intoxicated again. And what mm. that looks like in, in person is... Uh, um, you know, in, in the women that I work with, it's very often, you know, one of the 
kind of biggest tragedies of it is that they come in with this, you know, they come in in tears. I, uh, DCS is involved. The, I, the court's taking away custody from my children, of, mm. of me, of my children. And, you know, you find out their stories that they, um, you know, they, they, they were at home with three of their kids and they were intoxicated and, and there was a fire on the stove uh, and, and firefighters came in and had to carry them out of bed and, and take the, the three children out of the bedroom that the house would have burned mm-hmm. down and, or, or they've, they've allowed drug dealers into their house uh, around their children or they've been driving intoxicated with their kids in the back seat, not strapped in, you know, things that they are deeply ashamed of and yet they couldn't they didn't have the wherewithal to um, to see how just ludicrous that kind of behavior is. And so you're saying the frontal lobe, like l- literally our decision-making, our higher processes of what is good and what is right and what is wrong, it like it's just no longer able to... Th- to seize control of, of the behaviors as well as it did right. before? Right. Because if it, wow. if it was a matter of just being able to say, no, stop it, I'm done, then mm-hmm. nobody would continue on in the state of addiction, uh, in a true state of addiction, because it is, it is so demeaning and dehumanizing, that, that state of slavery, really, to, to a substance. Well, so you talked about neuroadaptation earlier about this process where, where as we do these behaviors and this pathway is stimulated kind of over and over again, the connections are changing, the, the, the ability of, of other, other pathways to take over. Um, so our, the brain is literally plastic. It's changing. It's, it's becoming a new brain with new connections as time goes by, neuroadaptation. What one of the things that you were talking about in in your talk that I thought was completely fascinating and terrifying was, well, so once you decide to stop, how long does it take before your brain can return to normal, and or will it ever return to normal? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, there's different ways to approach that question, and one of them is to say, well, how how long does it take before you can get your, um, you can kind of get back to normal life, and you're not bothered by cravings for right. drugs anymore, and you feel normal right. again. So subjectively, um, and that that does take years. That absolutely takes years. Years. Um, people okay. are very so you can't go through like a thirty day program and come out. And I've been clean for thirty days, and now I'm I'm normal. Yeah, that that's a that's a big lie, and, and you can, <laughs> I I could show you. 10 people that I'm seeing, you know, today and yesterday who have been in programs five or six plus times who, who will say, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't work. 30 days doesn't work. And yet mm-hmm. it does something. It, it, it's the beginning of something. But if it's looked at as I, you know, I can, I can go away for treatment for 30 days and I'm going to come back to life and live a different life, or I'm going to send my child to treatment for 30 days somewhere and they're going to be fixed when they come back. That, that's a big lie. And, and it's because the brain does not work that way. And the sooner that we kind of understand that, you know, we're dealing with a brain that's, we're dealing with the body, we're dealing with brokenness, and we're dealing with a chronic illness that takes a lot of time and nurturing and the right, the right treatment to get better, then, then our expectations can be more realistic. And we have a chance of not being 
not being disappointed easily, but not also not letting our disappointment, our expectations drive a person or ourselves back into mm-hmm. addiction because it's a mm-hmm. failure so soon, right? So, you know, brain imaging studies show us that, you know, it's not even till about 90 days to six months, three to six months before the frontal lobe systems begin to come back online, which is always very interesting that the insurance industry would only pay for 30 days or 28 days of treatment when, you know, at the 28-day mark, we don't see much activity in the frontal lobe Mm -hmm. at all. And we expect nothing's different. go back home, you know, start start taking out the trash and and driving your kids to school and just say no and be normal at that point. And that's why our recovery rates are are pretty abysmal after after just 28 days of treatment. Yeah. And so what about, do you have any idea? So if it's, you know, six, six to nine months, we're seeing, we're seeing changes and things are starting to return to normal. Is there a point years later that you can do a scan and say somebody's normal now and and it's not a problem? Or is there always going to be some sort of a permanent change there? Well, that's a, that's a good question. That's a really good question because it gets back to the idea of like, were you vulnerable in the first place, right? Um, because if you were vulnerable in the first place, then theoretically you'd say, well, you're always vulnerable then. Because it's genetic, you know, something genetic about us that makes us a more vulnerable to these pathways getting overridden. Yeah, that's that's probably the biggest factor of vulnerabilities. Mm. And then, mm-hmm. you know, if you've, if you've used previously or you've had an active addiction, then every, every addict knows that it's, it's kind of, it's a small sleeping, like a little seed in there somewhere that if it's watered mm-hmm. properly, it will germinate again and the problem will be full-blown before you know it. What, what other than genetics makes you predispositioned? Is it, is it psychologic trauma? Is it something in behavior and, and child rearing? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what else sets you up? I, I like to frame it in, in kind of three sections, biological, um, environmental, and developmental. So mm. biological is genes, you know, like it, it's a good 40 to 60% of your genetic, of your risk factor is genetic. You know, if they do mm-hmm. twin studies of that, you can, you can see it, which is tremendously huge, right? If you think I have two identical twin sons and one of them becomes an alcoholic, the risk of the other becoming an alcoholic is at least 50%, even if he is, um, lives in a different country and is raised in a monastery somewhere on the top of a, of a hill, <laughs> his yeah. risk is huge. But it's only 50%, you know, so sharing the same genes, 50% of, of the risk, that, that's a very large risk, but it, it doesn't account for it all. Then there's other biological factors, which, which are like epigenetics and things like that, that are kind of um, not well understood. The developmental factors are very important. Um, so you say, look at, look at people's adverse childhood experiences, and you can see that trauma, chaos, living with an addict parent, living with an abusive, uh, in abusive chaotic relationships will predispose people to, to be more likely to seek um, novelty and to escape and to want to mm-hmm. numb themselves and numb mm-hmm. their emotions in their adolescence and teenage years. But again, the flip side of that is that so many people who experience trauma and, and developmental challenges like that don't find themselves in addiction. But it is, it mm-hmm. is when you combine that with genetics. It's part of it. Yeah, it's certainly part of it. And then the environment is the third thing where, where you think of what are the things in my environment that promote my exposure to uh, drugs or alcohol or mitigate it. 
And and so you think of, I, I always like to think of, compare like Egypt or Saudi Arabia, which has, you know, incredibly strict laws against drinking alcohol. You know, they I forget what the, if it's public floggings, I think it is in Saudi Arabia, for being caught with alcohol, that, uh, and there's no legal sales of alcohol. So the rate of alcoholism is incredibly low in a country like that. Whereas over here, where we have it on every, basically every grocery store and every corner, access in the environment is easy. Um, you think about kids smoking marijuana. You know, it's a huge percentage of, of high school kids now who think that smoking marijuana is, is fine, and that perception mm -hmm. drives exposure to it. Um, and, so, and so it's much easier for those kids to have access now and to not think they're doing anything bad. So whereas if we had much more, um, if we had a message that was much more um, precautionary and we didn't have so mm -hmm. much access. So that's mm -hmm. the environment. So, and the same thing applies to when you come out of treatment or you're trying to get better. Um, it's very foolish to think that you can just go back into the same environment of your, your, say, your home or your apartment with your same family dynamics, your same stresses, your same job, everything that used to trigger you and support right. and enable your addiction being the same. Do you really think that a few days right. of treatment is going to make a big difference when you go back? Right, because the pathways, like you said, those pathways are all of that memory. And so you all those triggers, all of those stressors, all of those things that ever made you want to seek comfort right. uh, in, in whatever whatever it was that you were addicted to, if you keep hitting those same triggers over and over again, you, yeah. you're gonna you're, you keep triggering that same. And it doesn't old matter that you you go through them ninety nine percent of the time just fine. It's that it's that one time that you slip or that mm -hmm. you didn't focus or you're weak mm -hmm. and you're right back in the cycle of addiction. So the focus. What, what are, are some? Go ahead. I, I, I was just going to say, what, sorry to interrupt. What, what, we've talked a lot about it being drugs and like alcohol or illicit drugs or something like that. Are there are there other behaviors that that have this same kind of pathway that mimic this same process that we deal with? Well, yeah. So, so I think I think I know what you're getting at. Is there there's what we call in the field of addiction we call behavioral addiction. And behavioral addictions are usually what referred to like um, gambling, pornography. Um, uh, what are other ones? I'm trying to think here. Uh, Maybe I, I wonder if just uh, it, uh, extreme extreme sports or you know something you know just the the adrenaline rush of mm -hmm. of some of of some of the you know mm -hmm. rock climbing or some other kind yeah, of things so like that. That, you that know? gets to this idea of you know. It, if you call something like I'm addicted to something, it, it does sort of, it does sort of make something, it minimizes something that for some people is very, very severe. You say I'm addicted to chocolate. Um, you know, we could say it facetiously and kind of laugh about it. But when you're talking to someone who's 400 pounds or 350 pounds and can't move, mm -hmm. then when, if they say I'm addicted to chocolate, they're meaning they're meaning something much closer to the term mm -hmm. addiction, mm -hmm. like the heroin mm -hmm. addict means, than we mean, right? So mm -hmm. behavioral addictions like compulsive overeating, compulsive shopping, compulsive gambling where you, you're mm -hmm. repeatedly risking and losing tremendous amounts and putting your, your whole livelihood at risk for a short pleasure. Those, those, those share so much in common with, with what we see in, in um, drug addictions and alcoholism. 
And the brain research is really beginning to bear that out in a big way, which is which is very helpful because kind of everybody has really known that deep down that this is it's a broken part of the reward system. And sure enough, it is. So you can see, um, and in that talk that that um, uh, that we were at together, we we looked at some of those slides, right, where where you see obesity and cocaine addiction together and, and compared to normal, and you see they both show a downregulation of dopamine receptors in the same way compared to the normal. Mm. So that the brains, the brains of somebody who has some sort of a food addiction uh, function similarly to somebody who has a drug exactly, addiction. Exactly, exactly. Mm. And so, what Man. that means in terms of our treatment approaches and our even our just our basic human attitudes towards a person who struggles with those kind of things is is tremendous, right? What, mm-hmm. what that means when we begin to understand that. Yeah, and and I've heard so many people talking and and research getting out there, you know. Folks like Matt Frad, who do a lot of talking about, you know, pornography, and, and and that similarly, we we see a lot of those same pathways, those same triggers, uh, memories, and motivation, and all of these things that we're talking about driving people, uh, you know, with with other addictions again, you know, like porno- pornography and things like that. Yeah. So in the end, it comes down to when someone gets even even if even if the thing. The object is something that is inherently good, like chocolate is inherently good, wine is inherently good, and given to us for our enjoyment. Um, when when the pattern becomes um, broken and twisted, mm. uh, the the result is the same in, in the end. So how how do we deal as as individuals if we have someone in our lives? who is struggling with either a drug addiction or maybe one of these other behavioral addictions, how, how do we personally break that process of being either angry about it uh, to, to, to helping and, to, and, and how do we facilitate? Is there anything that we can do externally to help folks who are in addiction? Mm-hmm. Uh, if we're not like, you know, we're not, we're not, we're, we're not, people running a treatment center where I'm just a family member. What do I do? How do I help them? Yeah, I mean, there's whole books written about that, right? So um, just, you know, kind of at a, at a surface level, the things to think about are um, what breeds what breeds resentment better in, uh, in families of addiction, addicted individuals, um, or there's nothing that breeds addi- uh, resentment better than um, enabling behavior. And, and that mm. word enabling is very important because, you know, as a parent or a spouse, I, I absolutely love this person and I want the best for them. And the last thing I want to see is them on the street or doing something or going somewhere that I know is likely to lead them to harm. So, so there comes the, the judgment where we often fall into a pattern of giving in to small, making small concessions that actually enable the person's behavior um, because we're afraid of the deep, dark, final consequence. My son's going to end up homeless on the street, uh, yada, 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 right? Which are very real. Those fears are very real, and not to downplay them. But we don't realize that our concessions, okay, fine, you can take the car. Okay, you know, we had agreed that I'd only give you 10 bucks a day, but you need 20 for gas today. Uh, fine, here you go. Cause, or you call me up, and and you're... you're you're not safe where you are and you need to get into treatment. I'll pay for treatment the fifth time, even though it didn't work the four or the times before. So we always have to be questioning if what we're doing is enabling and acting out of love or are we acting out of fear? So, 
a really good resource to to get help with that is Al-Anon. You know, we, we all know mm-hmm. what AA is and stuff, but Al-Anon mm-hmm. is the meetings for families of loved ones with addiction. So the okay. family members, usually spouses you know, or children or parents of addicted mm-hmm. patients or persons, will get together and support each other and share ways and techniques that they've learned to be able to stay sane themselves and to walk this line between um, rejecting their child and enabling their child because mm-hmm. somewhere in the middle there is, is true love, right? Mm-hmm. And what are, is there anything that you can... Oh, sorry. Keep going. Keep going. Go ahead. I lost my train oh, Okay. Of I was going to say, I, my, you, when you were saying, you know, truly loving i the, the thing that popped in my mind was my children and, and 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 i've thought what 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 can i do as a parent then to to help my children either be stronger to resist or or not to put them in temptation you know are are there strategies that i can use as a parent to help strengthen my child so mm-hmm. that so that when they are exposed you know, they, they, they respond in, in a mm-hmm. better way. Is there anything I can do? Is there any advice yeah, you can offer there? You know, I, I'm just like you. I've, I've got, you know, a bunch of kids and a bunch of boys, and I, I do worry. <laughs> I worry about their yeah. exposure to pornography. I worry about their exposure to, to gateway drugs, and, and, you know, the world is kind of their oyster right now, and it's, there's nothing that says no out there. And, and young men don't want to say no, you know, naturally. Yeah. So... Um, you know, if we back up for just a second, we say if if your child or your spouse or whatever is in or is already in this cycle, and you as a family member, mm-hmm. what are you going to do there? I, th- I think it's important to say that um, addiction loves uh, to be in hiding, and and shame mm-hmm. is um, mm-hmm. one of the best enablers of addiction that there is. Whether it's the individual's shame from fessing up and saying, "I have a problem, help me," or the family's shame of saying, "I don't mm-hmm. want to say that my son is struggling with something." But there's nothing more powerful than pulling the curtains back and having the mm-hmm. light shine in to be able to relieve people of that shame and open you up mm-hmm. to all sorts of accountability and um, supports out there. So Amen. for families who are struggling with a person with addiction, the, the biggest thing you can do is get everybody in on it. You get mm-hmm. everybody, because it's only one or two degrees of separation between you and, and a good source of help, you know, in, okay. in any area, but especially in, in addiction, that's true. Um, and then if, you, if we're thinking about, like, prevention for our own children, um, and again, this is not coming from an expert. My kids are, are not yet, they're almost at adulthood and not quite there. Not that that means anything either. But um, what, what I've... You know what Teresa and I really believe is is kind of a way forward through this is to put everything on the table, keep everything on the table. You know we're going to talk about masturbation, we're going to talk about pornography, uh, we're going to talk about your likelihood of exposure, we're going to talk about marijuana a lot, we're going to talk about um, cigarettes, we're going to those are going to be the things that you perceive as cool and taboo. We're going to put them on the table. To talk and people about. have got, I mean, there there's industries out there for video game addiction too, right? There's um uh, that, that yeah that's a for real thing. Um, you, do you mean there's um, treatment out there for it? Treatment, right? I yeah. mean that the people that people are working to treat because because you know these video games are hitting these same pathways. Uh, yes, uh, and, and reinforcement. on purpose. On purpose. Yeah. There's good evidence that they're well researched in how they deploy mm-hmm. their programming so that they absolutely you know, yeah. 
So these are all of the things that, that we have to keep on the table, we have to talk about with our families. And, and so you're saying, talk about it, be open about it, shine light on it, uh, make it part of the forefront, mm-hmm. never, never, never hide it away. Yeah, like, you know, in an age-appropriate way, like, like you and yeah. I have talked about before. Um, but age-appropriate is probably earlier than we, than we are mm-hmm. comfortable with. Right. You know, uh, you know, you don't want to be talking about things with your 13 year old son because you still really want to wish he's 10. Um, but you need to and you probably had to last year. You know, yeah, we're, we're all yeah. there. We've been there. Yeah. Yeah. So is, you know, I, I feel tied up when we start talking about these behavioral addictions. I, it starts to get me closer into the idea of of that there's there's a is there there's a moral wrong going on here or there's a a moral fault to me as an individual if I can't deal with this behavior mm-hmm. if I'm if I'm stuck dealing with this behavior there's something wrong with me I am immoral mm-hmm. you know so wh- where wh- how does your mind wrap around the morality uh of addiction. Mm-hmm. Well, I tell you what, that's, that's a something big, that's, that's a big, co- yeah, it, that's a hard topic. Yeah, it is. And, and it's something that, that in particular Catholic theology or, or classical um, theology has, a, is I think very well equipped to deal with this idea that, um, you know, the, our culpability or our guilt for something um, depends on several things. You know, it has to be a grave matter to be a grave sin, which, you know, all these areas are grave matters. Uh, pornography, mm-hmm. masturbation, um, uh, heroin use, they're all grave matters. But the the other area is you have to have full knowledge and full assent of the will. And and so the assent of the will is is the big thing here that comes into question. If if our biological part of our brain that that underlies our ability to make a free choice is diseased you know Mm. like you know i've had i've had several patients not just one older men who have frontal temporal dementia where their frontal temporal lobe is is degenerating and these will be 60 year old men who at the the peak of their careers get sick and they end up walking around naked in their neighborhood or they they go to a um a, a mcdonald's and and hit on young women or things where you know, we don't blame them because we know they're sick and we know it's their frontal lobe that's degenerating so they're not able to make choices and, and, and you know, so they're doing serious things but we know they're not guilty of a serious thing because they, and the same thing mm-hmm. applies in mm-hmm. addiction, especially in full-blown addiction. But there's sort of this continuum where you'd say the more and more habituated a person gets to, to this act, the less and less they have in t- uh, ability to say no, and therefore their their guilt in those actions is less and less um, mm-hmm. uh, severe or serious. Um, not to say the matter itself is not serious. Of course, it becomes more and more serious. And there may be um, significant guilt associated at the beginning if you're doing things with full knowledge of how wrong they are and you're choosing anyway. But But down the road, a person becomes enslaved to it. And that's mm-hmm. that's that's where theology and the idea of habits um, mirror or, or begins to you begin to see how um, so the the science supports our our understanding of the human person because those habits are nothing other than pathways in the brain that are, are kind of consistently laid down and and the neuroadaptation has happened so that 
actions are habituated, and God makes it that way so that we don't have to think about things all the time, that we can run on autopilot all, you know, properly. I, I, I know I'm not a confessor, obviously. I, 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 I'm, on the, I'm on the other oh, end okay. of that process. I, yeah, I, I, yeah so I didn't, if you didn't know. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, can, I, I know that you know, when, when priests give counsel to folks who are stuck in habitual sin, there's, there's a little more grace and lenience given yes. to somebody who's clearly enslaved like you said, by this sin. Yes. Um, and, and not that the matter is no longer grave, but like you said, that, that this is now moved into a realm uh, where the person's culpability is a little bit lessened than, than, than yes. what it was. And, and, that, and, and that I think that, that bi- that's fascinating that our, our biological understanding is now catching up a mm-hmm. little bit to, to understanding why have we always had this, this spiritual... Uh, sense of kind of mercy, mm-hmm. you know, for folks who are stuck in in habitual sin. Uh, I, you know, today's uh, this this podcast comes out on Good Friday, uh, and uh, I don't. I wonder. I wonder how how our understanding of the sacrifice made for us on Good Friday re- relates to um, to addiction mm-hmm. and and this this sense of the whole person that that Christ. Not only suffered on the cross to to forgive us of our sins, uh, he he suffered spiritually. He he suffered as a whole person, body and spirit, for our redemption, body and spirit. Um, and and a lot of what we see, and when it comes to these addictions, it is a it is a bodily uh, dysfunction, uh, not just a, a a spiritual or mind. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, thing is, this is a bodily dysfunction, and that and that Christ's sacrifice for us uh, was was a whole person sacrifice, body and spirit for our body and spirit. So I think that's that's hopefully gives courage to all of us that that Christ's grace can be healing on, on multiple levels for us. Oh, I think so, man. I think that's um, the the mercy that we experience um, sh- on Calvary should be something that translates into how we mercifully address others, especially the mm-hmm. most vulnerable and, and broken. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm very excited, very excited to, to be at a time and place in science and medicine where we can start to um, really bring the science to the table where the church has been already for years in terms of mercy mm-hmm. and this compassionate understanding um, I'm really excited to see how marrying um, Catholic teaching and Catholic theology, in particular theology of the body, um, marrying that with addiction treatment. Can we come up with something better? You know, better, it, awesome. Would would it would exposure to the sacraments and spiritual direction yeah. and um, the wholesomeness of of um, uh, of of life of uh, leading towards the virtues could that be brought to bear on top of normal standard treatment and would that mm-hmm. enrich it and make it more successful? I'm very excited about that. That is that is what a great future. So hopeful to think that maybe we could move that direction. Well, Mike, I think we'll wrap up here um, and just say what well, this is. This has been great. I, I loved hearing this information again. I hope the rest of the folks out there uh, uh, were interested too. I, I don't know if you know, but Tra- uh, Tracy and Fran always do a last little bit. 
uh, you know, at the end of their talks. And just one last thing to throw out there, something to think about, to leave folks with. Uh, so I'll give you a second to think about what you may want to do as your last little bit. But I, I was thinking in terms of, in terms of um, this time where this this time where we're all under stress right now with with the coronavirus and people are wrapped up at home. And I was thinking how hard this time must be for people with addictions Um, because it's stress is triggering them. You know, the, they're, they're, they're not dealing, they're, they're either, either stress at their job, stress financially, stress in their families, fear of, of, of illness. All of these things are likely triggering folks who Mm -hmm. have those pathways towards addiction. Uh, And so I might say as a, as just a, a call to all those listening right now that maybe add to your prayers not not only an end you know to this virus uh, and 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 to this epidemic that we've got going on right now, but but pray for folks with addiction uh, because I I think that they are probably struggling now with those temptations more more than ever, and I bet this is a difficult time for them. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna add to my daily prayers, you know, in addition to, to getting rid of this virus, uh, pray for all those with addiction who are, who are struggling right now during this time of stress. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very good. I know we're hearing in treatment, um, we're getting all sorts of calls from people who say, I'm home, I'm home with my kids. I can't come in, but I'm drinking a lot more. I'm using more. I, I got to get into yeah. treatment soon. And we've seen yeah. alcohol sales go up dramatically during this time, mm-hmm. which is not mm-hmm. always a good thing. I, you know, let me let me end with um, the uh, uh, prayer to Saint Mark, who's nicknamed the Trier. I, I discovered him a few years ago as a, as a great patron for um, both uh, people with addiction and also for people who treat addiction. So Saint Mark G, um, I can't pronounce his last name, Zhang Tang or something like that. Was, <laughs> okay. was a Chinese doctor at the turn of the century uh-huh. and became addicted to opioids himself when he was trying to treat his own stomach ailments with opium, and he became addicted. His um, his parish priest eventually got tired of him coming to confession and told him that if he didn't kick this habit, he couldn't come back to receive the sacraments. And um, poor St. Mark, he could not, and yet he, he continued to be faithful and, and attend but not receive um, at Mass every Sunday and um, used to pray that he would become a martyr, that, that, that he would receive the crown of martyrdom, which um, he was, I think, in the maybe 1907 or 08 or somewhere right around there. He was um, a victim of, of one of the revolutions, and he and all his family were put to death. And he actually asked to be the last one in the row so that he could support all his grandchildren, children, sons and daughters-in-law as they were beheaded before him. Mm. And, um, and then, so here's, here's a prayer to St. Mark, which we could end with. His feast day is July 9th. Glorious St. Mark, holy martyr of China, you are the patron saint of drug addicts because for many years you struggled with the effects of opium addiction, which affected every aspect of your life. Yet despite this, you never gave up trying and praying, and in heaven God has rewarded your perseverance. Dear saint, you know better than anyone the great tribulations that come with addiction. Look with compassion upon all drug addicts throughout the world and deliver them from their bondage. Strengthen them in their recovery and help them resist their temptations. Obtain from God that drug addicts everywhere may receive the support and the compassion they deserve, and may all through the grace of God be restored to full health. Amen. Amen. St. Mark, pray for us. Pray for us. Awesome. 
thanks thanks mike for being with us today this was awesome i really appreciate it thanks for the for the honor and uh yes happy good friday and happy easter happy easter everybody Thanks for joining us today on Bellator Colloquium. Please look for Bellator Society on everything social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And if you like what we're doing here on this podcast, we would love for you to share that with us. Rate us on iTunes to help us get the word out and share, share, share. We cannot wait to chat next time right here on Bellator Colloquium, the conversation for online warriors for the true, good, and beautiful.